leading the fight, one man fate has made indestructible. His name, Captain Scarlet. The Mistrons there from Captain Scarlet, sounding like they've had one too many pina coladas. Hello and welcome to episode two of the Quentin Crowbar Film and TV podcast. My name's Tom Senior and I don't sleep. Instead, I watch huge amounts of film and telly in the early hours. Uh, and to be honest, that's the extent of the expertise I have on the matter, which is why I'm delighted to be joined by, once again, a professional uh, TV writer, Jimmy Britton. How are you, Jamie? Yeah, I'm all right. Not too bad. I, I do sleep, but that's because the small screaming person who lives in my house <laughs> knackers us out so much that uh, an episode of telly is about all I can manage by the end of the day. Yeah, I feel lucky. Uh, I feel lucky in that respect, I suppose. <laughs> cherish cherish um, those moments. <laughs> I, 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 I will, actually. Yeah. So the first thing I want to say, actually, is I wanted to say thank you to everyone who gave us feedback based on the first episode via Twitter, Discord and email. I'm still figuring out a way to elegantly do spoiler warnings and stuff like that which is important because it's a shame to introduce a new show that everyone wants to watch and then to actually ruin the ending of it <laughs> without warning. So um, yeah, we'll be careful about that. Today we changed the order a little bit. We're going to start with stuff we've been watching recently. Then we're going to talk about sort of vintage British TV shows that we love. That's going to be the list bit. And then at the end, we're going to talk about marriage story and I'm thinking of ending things. And that'll be the big kind of deep dive spoilery bit. So if you want to watch any of those two shows, you could just stop listening and uh, for the rest of the podcast there. A bit easier that way. Both on uh, Netflix. Both on Netflix, where you can watch that. <laughs> so, yeah, let's start with you, you, Jamie. What have you been watching and enjoying recently? Without wanting to be too much of a person who reports back week on week about what my four-year-old daughter is watching, <laughs> I have been watching Elena of Avalor on Disney+, Plus, which huh. O2, I'm an O2 subscriber. Other phone companies are available, but I'm an O2 subscriber. And yeah, uh, uh, they gave me six months of Disney+, Plus free, which is good. Um, and a kind of godsend, actually, because if you have a little girl like I do, there is no escaping the Disney films that will inevitably seep into your life and having them all uh, uh, within your grasp is excellent. Elena of Avalor is a rather random show that my daughter really, really loves. It is about a princess who is the princess or nascent monarch of a kind of magical realm and it's it's very influenced by a latino culture she's a latin american princess the, ah, cool. the show is a conscious effort to make a latin american princess character for you know uh, girls in america of that heritage to uh, you know enjoy it's all very uh, well conceived i think the one thing i wanted to mention it for though is if you watch the first episode the first episode starts off with a long, long, long introductory spiel, which is basically them outlining the origin film that they didn't bother to make. Because <laughs> there's lots of films, uh, shows on Disney Plus, um, again, and they're all quite high quality, um, which are, you know, series versions of some of their recent uh, films, like Tangled, and they have lots of series based on those, those shows. Elena of Avalor is entirely original, but clearly they want to give the impression that it is based on a real film that they made so they give you a film's worth of previously on um which is a very very involved and elaborate story about people getting trapped in amulets and monsters and prophecies and stuff like that and then <laughs> roll credits and start the show that's so weird uh, it's very weird it's a sort of very peculiarly corporate thing i think where they clearly felt the need to make a show 
uh, with a different ethnicity princess. And I think that's a really good and honest decision to make. But they also didn't want to actually make the film or just sort of start off the show with that story. They wanted to make it seem like there was a film, <laughs> which is... So are, they, are, they, are they sort of seeking to give it extra legitimacy or something? I, I mean, kids aren't going to care about that, right? No, kids don't care. And, and like that opening spiel just flies past and my daughter doesn't bat an eyelid. She doesn't ask questions or anything, you know, and she... Mm. So I think that's probably quite a conscious effort on their part to do. But it is a weird, weird thing and very Disney, I think, to be like, well, we want to give this princess equal worth to our white <laughs> princesses. We're not actually going to do that, though, because we don't want to make that <laughs> film. So we're right, just going to okay. jam it all into the pre-credit sequence. That said, like a lot of the shows, it's very well made and very well put together. My my daughter really enjoys it. And there's lots of like bespoke songs, for example, that have been written for the show which are really good fun and, and get caught in your head and stuff like that and generally if you've got little kids disney plus a lot of the like tv show content you can get on there is pretty good they've got a lot better in recent years of doing kind of princess stuff that tries to kind of kick against some of the old cliches and stuff like that yeah so are the frozen films disney i forget actually they um, are yes they are um, so i think they're another good attempt to present aspirational female characters who are don't slot into traditional roles that Disney used to be yes. famous for. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I love Frozen 1. Frozen 2, I have issues. <laughs> I have issues <laughs> oh, yeah, tell me about those issues. <laughs> well, let's, let's complain about Frozen 2. <laughs> Frozen 1 is a, a, you know, a little masterpiece, I think, because it's... Yeah, it's wonderful. I mean, aside from the songs and all that sort of, and the, the look of it, that you know, it's all wonderful. It is a film that is about a female relationship, which isn't about rivalry and isn't about, like snark <laughs> mm. it's about the love between two sisters and how that can kind of tear them apart it's lovely it's a wonderful film and the fact that the, the act of true love is is true love between sisters at the end of that film spoilers for yes. frozen uh, is great frozen 2 which does have some amazing songs in it it does and some great visuals i think is so confused and is so eager not to sort of set up, set up any rivalry or conflict between the two sisters. It wants to sort of protect them and keep them holy that the entire film collapses around it <laughs> like a <laughs> fragile ice castle, you know, and it's meandering and nonsensical and it doesn't know what its identity is. Um, it's uh, all, there's, there's too much plot in that film. I, think, I, I, did, I still quite enjoyed it because, as you say, it's a spectacle and it looks and sounds amazing. Uh, but uh, it's the fact they sort of they felt the need to bring back characters from the first film that are joke characters, almost like Shakespearean clown characters, and that just sort of seems to confuse things, like the prince and the the snowman, uh, who obviously I'm sure they'd love to sell toys of, uh, which might be one of the reasons that they kept them. Uh, but it does seem to detract from this, the story of these two sisters and their their relationship. And you're right, there's not very much conflict in the film between them at all. Whereas in the first one, there is quite a believable rivalry. Yes, yes, I, I, and it's not even a rivalry. It does it manages to be tense and engaging, whilst it's actually being about these two young people fighting their own battles, which I think is mm. is why it becomes so. It's such it, it's such a draw for young people, particularly young girls. I think, and my daughter's no exception. In Frozen Two, she asks constant questions: Why is she mm. doing that? Why is Elsa doing that? Because it just it's so, you know, Frozen speaks so directly to something inside young girls and young people i think and frozen 2 does not <laughs> it, mm, that's it, is, it is a meandering spirit quest into nothingness yeah yes you know <laughs> that's a good way of describing it actually <laughs> and it's kind of it's, um i find it fascinating how kids react to this stuff because 
they're like actually really savvy. I think most children are really savvy, like when a plot's not working, when they're bored and they've got no kind of, uh, they don't necessarily have the politeness to not just walk away from a thing if they don't like it. <laughs> no. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, which is quite refreshing and it's, it's good feedback, I think. So you end up being kind of support crew for the film. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> uh, no, carry on watching it. It's good. It's, it's like, you know, which is the opposite of television for children. You want it to, yes, to, yeah. to subdue them and shut them up. <laughs> I think uh, so many people in uh, this year, 2020, have been thankful for CBPC, um, Peppa Pig, um, Frozen, and the many other franchises that keep their young ones occupied uh, during the, these stressful times. Jesus, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. I love that you've brought a kid's show, actually. And do you mind if I ask how old your daughter is? She is four. So um, how have you kind of, how have her TV watching habits evolved? Because when I was a child, I used to watch very repetitive things like Candlewick Green, which uh, features extended intro sequence where a model slowly comes out rotating from a box, goes on for about 10 minutes. <laughs> and for some reason, that was enough for me. That's all the entertainment I needed oh, yeah. when I was, I was younger. But I wonder like, what your experiences are with that. Well, they, they still do that. They still reuse a lot of footage. Mm, <laughs> Anything that they can play again and again. Cost saving, yeah, for sure. It's funny because if I try and show my daughter like some old cartoons, you know, I tried to show her the old DuckTales series. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. There's a new one, which is very good on Disney+, Plus, but the old one and like <laughs> something about the archaic nature of the animation from the 80s and stuff like that it's just instantly nightmarish and i mean to my <laughs> eyes as well you know that faintly hallucinogenic effect of those slightly scrappily animated saturday morning cartoons that we watched in the early 90s you know yeah it, Captain it, Planet it, and all that what? stuff it still retains mm. a kind of weird faintly hypnotic faintly unnerving tone which they seem to pick up on immediately because everything they watch is much more polished yeah much better animation i, th I think a kind of hallmark of those old animations is the fact that the entire frame is still apart from the mouth <laughs> that is the only bit they animate yeah. and uh, there's actually something quite inhuman about that and a bit weird compared to today's animation which is extraordinary really it's amazing what people can do on a budget these days really really uh is and like often like they'd spend all the money on the theme tune. Looking back on it, the only reason we watched DuckTales was for the amazing theme tune, I think. I think after it's that, it was pretty terrible. <laughs> the Animaniacs theme tune was always a, a really oh, fun one cool, as well. Yeah. Do you remember Freakazoid? Freakazoid? I don't remember Freakazoid. Freakazoid had a very good theme tune. It was actually, it was kind of erratic in a way that was very entertaining for youngsters. Mm. It's about a kind of superhero anti-hero figure who goes around having bonkers adventures but i think most of the battle is won if you've got a good theme tune for yeah kids. <laughs> i think so elena uh, of avalor has a fantastic one which i could sing right now which i'm not going to um, <laughs> <laughs> but i mean you know to answer your question like with my daughter we've like a lot of kids particularly right now she watches too much tv so we try and be quite diligent as much mm. as we can about what we let her watch films are quite good because they're a bit more rich and textured and they're not just like opiate for her eyes and obviously the cbbc content is all pretty god tier there's a show called hey dougie which i would recommend to adults to watch it's sort of the funniest show on television it's so well written and so well conceived and just funny from start to finish That's awesome. um yeah so like we try and be like everyone we try and be kind of diligent about it and fail at that quite a lot but there's so much good stuff out there and it's all mm. on tap so it's kind of <laughs> it's, yeah it's, it's very convenient i was wondering uh, like at what age do you think you'd introduce her to adventure time which is kind of an interesting fantasy show high fantasy but also slightly a horror show as well quietly for adults if you're watching it 
Yeah, and she's she's very sensitive to that stuff. I mean, she mm. once found me watching um, BoJack Horseman, and she oh, was wait. momentarily entertained by Gosh. that. But I think most of the the deeply miserable and pessimistic heart of that show went over her head, thankfully. Yeah, that, that I mean, that whole show is about depression. <laughs> so, it's something that won't necessarily resonate with the, uh, with the youngsters in the same way. Cool show, though. Yeah. Again, a good theme tune for that as well. Oh, very good, yeah. <laughs> so what I've been watching recently is I've been getting back into the reality TV. We were talking in the last episode about morphine, basically. Shows that just kind of occupy your attention and are entertaining and great escapism. And in that vein, I've been watching Below Deck, which I believe is on... So the first two seasons are on Netflix, and the rest of the sort of six or seven other seasons of spin-offs are on a different uh, streaming service, which I forgot the name of, but I put it in the show notes. And what this is, is it's a reality TV show set on a boat that very rich people charter, but it's shot from the perspective of the crew who have to serve these incredibly wealthy maniacs. And th- there are two tiers to the crew. There's, there's the internal people who do all the kind of washing up and the service. And then there are the, the deckhands who have to run the actual logistics of the boat, which turns out to be very complicated. The two stars of the show are Captain Lee, who uh, I call him Mr. Fishfingers, just because like, uh, the, the bird's eye reference is inescapable. But he's also very kind of seasoned and grumpy, but in quite a fair way, like he's a good boss, you think. And then there's the leader of the internal team called Kate, and she's really grown into her role. So it's one of these shows where you get like a slice of reality on the on the deck, like just showing them going about their business. But then it cuts away to talking heads, which is like a classic reality TV trope now where they comment on what just happened in the scene you just watched. And I've always been fascinated by how artificial that is. So I always think, when did you film this interview? And like, it's against the green screen, you can tell. So it's obviously done post-production. And so they must have shown these people the footage of what they've said and done, then asked them to say something very catty (laughs) and arch about it in front of the green screen. I really want to watch a documentary about how these things are made because so many reality TV shows follow the same format. Yeah, um, and it can feel quite relentless. <laughs> it really can. And like a lot of those shows kind of live or die on how well they can kind of achieve a sense of verisimilitude or if That's it just ends up just feeling scripted. <laughs> yeah, and so I don't believe for one second that anything in this show actually happened. <laughs> That's my attitude to this type of reality TV, really. But still, nonetheless, very entertaining. It's great because Low Deck has a great sense of variety built into the structure of the show in that the chartered guests who come on, they're only on for two or three days. And the next episode, there'll be new charter guests and there are constantly like deckhands or crew members leaving. There are only like a couple of consistent characters. And I, I call them characters because, again, they are fiction, really. And th- that sort of presents new challenges constantly every episode. And it's just very, very well edited. I think the, the key to a great reality TV show in that mold is just really good editing and an eye for comic timing in the way that they show reaction shots, which may have been filmed days previous to the event they reacted to. But nonetheless, actually, they create a story. They sort of mash together a narrative from this supposedly real behavior. And uh, yeah, it's, it's a good genre. It's a great show. What's, really like it. what's the typical sort of story of an episode of Below Deck? Because like, you know, they're on a boat, so they've got limits there. <laughs> yes, but it's an absolutely massive boat though, Jamie. <laughs> it's absolutely enormous. It's like a small city. Yeah. Like, it's, it's a super yacht. Yeah. And that's part of the aspirational aspect of the show. It's one of the reasons it's fun to watch is because you get to see rooms and places that on my wage, <laughs> I would never ever get to see. So that, there's that aspect to it. So the trouble is Captain Lee is obviously very seasoned and Kate is very seasoned. They're, they're both very experienced. and They're good. They're strict, but good bosses. 
but each time they have to hire a new crew because it's very seasonal work they hire beautiful young and just relentlessly horny people <laughs> uh frankly who are also kind of party goers as they should be because it's this reminds me of blue peter as well that's this is, that's a weird sideways thing to say <laughs> horny, horny blue peter horny, yeah, yeah horny blue peter on the ocean um <laughs> And the thing about the reason I mentioned Blue Peter is that one of the prerequisites for being a presenter on Blue Peter, or it used to be, is that you have to be a kind of a thrill seeker and up for anything. And you have to like, oh, they want you to jump out of a plane for a segment. Yeah, sure, I'll do that. Because that's what the show demands. And they're, they're supposed to be very energetic and full of life. And then suddenly they're surprised when one of them does cocaine. <laughs> Absolutely, <laughs> like, yeah. What did you think was going to happen with these young people who are uh, you know, up for trying new things? And that's kind of what the crew are like on uh, Below Deck. So it's a it's a kind of miniature soap opera. So they're all hooking up with each other, and it's always disastrous. Or they've um, they've got exes that they're on calls with, that they're breaking up with, and cheating on. And then there'll just be a bit where someone's very bad at ironing, <laughs> and the, the boss shouts at them for a bit. <laughs> that turns into a kind of grudge. It's just a fantastic reality TV show. It's really good fun. I'll have to check that one out. I've got friends who um, work in, you know, what they would call structured reality, which is, yeah, mm. the only way is Essex and all that sort of right. show. Right, yeah, yeah. This is exactly in that mould, for sure. Yeah, I mean, those shows are mental because you <laughs> <Yeah>. literally, <laughs> your producers, the producers, like the role my friend had on, on one of these shows, is like, you know, you have to kind of constantly be generating content by sitting people down next to each other mm. and prompting them to talk about things you know the instant after you say that you roll camera if you watch love island actually you yes, can so tell yeah. that someone's just prompted the uh, one of the contestants to say ask kate what she thinks about snogging steve last night you know <laughs> that's right yeah, and then yeah. literally they'll roll cameras just go what do you think about kate snogging steve? you know and that's <laughs> probably the next thing that happens and so it's this kind of mad world you have to exist in where you're incredibly close and intimate and up close with these people whilst also trying to shit stir, whilst also trying yeah. to keep them all happy. <laughs> and sort of be friends with them perhaps a bit, yeah. To be honest, it's like psychotic part of me would love to be a producer on one of those shows. Because yes. like, it's, you have to be incredibly manipulative in a professional way to actually get the content you need for the show to work. But also the casting is super important as well. And um, Love Island, obviously, they just go around Instagram and they pull hot people who for well in a camera interview and then they just put them all together in a sort of cauldron and oh. then tell them all to argue with each other yes yeah, it's, it's uh, extraordinary that show not least because of the amount of death it seems to inspire yeah um, but it's, it's quite a dark side of this it's yeah. the dark side of it i mean i've watched it as well obviously but like it's funny because they do a thing where they run a massive open call for contestants on mm. that show and then cast almost none of them. <laughs> it's important for that show to give the promise that anyone watching could be a part of it, whilst actually they cast it like they would a drama show from Instagram and stuff like Absolutely. that, which I find yeah. fascinating. There's a show, there's a drama show called Unreal, which is quite easy to find, I think, which is about a producer of a reality show and it's about the kind of deals with the devil you have to make to work on one of those and it's very good. The lead character mm. is basically like Iago from Othello, this kind of morally debased uh, yeah and it's very very good it's a really really good kind of high trash uh watch that show i can recommend yeah i've, I've not seen that it sounds great though i'd also recommend just for the very early big brother days charlie brooker used to write fantastic columns about the first se seasons of big brother that uh properly pick apart the artificiality while also indulging in the fun of watching people argue with each other and betray each other and just be kind of horrible <laughs> in a, in front of live television. 
I'm kind of glad that Big Brother's gone now. I kind of prefer this structured reality stuff to Big Brother, actually, because I, I felt like though we were talking about the uh, the tragedies that have been associated with Love Island, Big Brother also destroyed people's lives without a doubt, just in terms of just capturing something, everything you say at any moment. And if you slip up once, it goes on national television forever. And that's that's your kind of public reputation destroyed. And while at the same time, they're all striving to be famous. It feels like a very cruel situation to me. Yeah, I, I agree. And it, it ended up getting quite deranged, <laughs> didn't it? it was- sure, yeah. Like, talk about psychotic producers, the sort of challenges and tasks they used to set people in, like, like season three and four of Big Brother. They had psychologists basically messing with people <laughs> yeah. in a way that I just, like, I, I couldn't enjoy it on any level anymore because it just seemed too, too wrong. No. But then again, there was that series of Celebrity Big Brother with Jermaine Greer and John McCrick. I, I mean, oh my God. <laughs> Doesn't it have to be br- <laughs> putting those two people together in a room? Says some very mean things to each other. <laughs> Booby flies in coach. That was his wife. <laughs> so that she, she would, fly, he would fly first class, and she would get, stick Booby in coach. <sighs> yep. Anyway, it's <laughs> a whole, pod, pod, whole podcast to talk about Celebrity Big Brother. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I we'll definitely come back and touch on various reality TV shows. Love Island's interesting. There's one that ran earlier this year, which was about people who get engaged without ever seeing each other. Yes, I watched um, that one. I watched the whole thing. Yep, me too. And I really enjoyed it but there's such fakery in that show like people jilting each other at the altar which is obviously just a, such a producer move right like that's that's not real uh, there's also a bit where like a, a woman in a full wedding dress runs out and then falls into a ditch because she's so angry <laughs> that's a, and uh, I, I feel bad that that would happen like if you scripted that and it was an actor doing it i wouldn't have a, any sort of moral qualm with it but the fact is like someone actually might actually be going through some suffering <laughs> some emotional torment uh who then falls over and it's, it's a prattful joke yeah yeah it's just a bit awkward isn't it i it, think it is a bit although i have to admit that one you know these kind of things it's easy to kind of look back on them and sort of pick apart how morally bankrupt they all are but like mm. that one completely hooked me in and i was addicted to it and i watched every episode and the verisimilitude started to infect my brain and i started yeah, to kind of yeah. you know root for it. fiction. it's terrible feeling really because you feel so dirty afterwards it's uh yeah i i loved it as well and i think what's fascinating about it is that i think it's basically a one shot because anyone who goes on that sh- the next series of that show which will definitely happen they will have watched the first one and then suddenly like as with big brother you get this additional layer of artificiality over the the one that's already there and you can't really trust that anyone's behaving in the way that they would naturally at all because they're all trying to get on the cover of Vogue. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'll still watch it, don't get me wrong. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I am hooked. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm 100% in. Yeah, so is there, is there anything else you've been watching recently, Jamie, that you'd like to talk about? Yeah, so I've also, uh, this is sort of one specific thing. I kind of, every now and again, I just like to watch a kind of random thing <laughs> mm. out of nowhere. And I decided to just go on YouTube and they've got all the episodes of the 1970s Incredible Hulk series. Um, oh my there. God. They're, like, they're not for free. They're like, I paid £2.50, I think, for one episode. Right. But I was just Which like, <laughs> I was just like, fuck it. I'm going to watch some random episode of 70s TV. And I watched an episode of Incredible Hulk, which was from the second series called Alice in Disco Land. I just couldn't resist I mean, well, that yeah, title. <laughs> I would do the same thing. I think. <laughs> yeah, I think it's probably one of them. If, for anyone who's browsing through the episode titles of Incredible Hulk, Alice in Disco Land is hard to resist. <laughs> yeah, and it's just, I don't know, I've always been fascinated by that breed of show that they've made kind of since the birth of television, really. Sort of the Lone Ranger, the Fugitive, um, mm. 
the Incredible Hulk, Quantum Leap, Sliders. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> you're that's a precise genre you've described there. A, I don't quite know what links them all, but yeah. It is what links them all is a lonely man arrives arrives in a place at the beginning of an episode, solves a self-contained and well-budgeted sort of scenario which is going on in that place and then leaves at the end of the episode, which is kind of like a really pure form of storytelling. It's kind of the oldest story, actually. It's sort of like a primeval, pre-Arthurian hero narrative of the person who goes out a-wandering and solving. It's Seguin and the Green Knight, you know. <laughs> For but, those... but you could deliver it in 40 minutes flat. Yeah, you could deliver it in 40 minutes. Although those old episodes of television are a, a smooth 55 minutes, which I always forget that like the original episodes of Star Trek were 50-plus minutes long, which is long. The days, the days before, lo- loads of advertising breaks. Yeah. Yeah, and it is... I always loved those shows. They're all the same show. But you get a different thing every week. And they're like watching The Incredible Hulk, which is like a show our parents would have spoken about. You know, it's a proper boomer show. Hmm. But like watching it, it comes out the tail end of the 70s. It's so deeply sad. It's such a deeply sad premise for a show. Like a, like a crushingly sad premise for a show. In that this guy, he's The Incredible Hulk, and he's been framed for a crime that maybe he committed as a Hulk. I don't know. Either way, he has to walk the earth never staying in in one place for more than an episode of television and a quick gangster to mollify before moving on. The famous, the much parodied, standing by the side of the road, holding your thumb <laughs> yes. out while the music plays. I, I love that shit, though. <laughs> it's, it's great, and it means you can tell a different story every week with a different cast of characters, such as a show about a 18-year-old alcoholic who has been taken in by a gang of disco dancers and is being <laughs> slowly corrupted by them. And, <laughs> and like, so, Sorry, I'm going to have to stop you there, Jamie, and ask you, what possible evil influence could disco dancers have over an individual? Well, they're, they're just kind of, they're like, they're very competitive. And there's this, there's this young girl who turns out to be the Incredible Hulk's goddaughter. He just happens to be what? like, yeah, <laughs> the Incredible Hulk has got a job collecting glasses in a disco job. <laughs> He recognises among the dancers a young woman who he is his goddaughter, I think, and who he read Alice in Wonderland, which is where the title comes to. Uh-huh. Um, and he basically is going to spend the episode trying not to get angry and then getting angry and, <laughs> and uh, beating up the people who are, you know, basically supplying her with booze. And it's that whole thing of like, it's torn from the headlines. This episode is about young people being addicted to drinking in 1978 mm. America. And yeah, it's... There's something marvellous about it. There's something really... It's really well put together. Like, the disco dancing scenes are good. They're well-conceived. The scripts are well-written. Deeply, deeply sad. (laughs) You know, like, this is a guy who's never going to make any connections and is always Mm. going to be running. It is The Fugitive, as you say. Yeah, same same show. And, and yeah, it's great. (laughs) And it comes of a different era. I think, you know, the 70s, it's kind of much pointed out i think that like in the 70s films that you would go and see they didn't have happy endings it took until like rocky and star wars and films Mm. like that where like it's like oh it's got like a happy ending you know whereas like previous to that the french connection the ending of that is just horrible and that was quite standard just like you could like taxi driver and stuff like that as well yeah it's just like everyone dies and it's horribly unfair it's a very pessimistic kind of vibe and the hulk the incredible hulk i think really kind of feels of that era actually it feels like a kind of post-Vietnam, fragmented, Cold War, um, 
you know, inescapable industrial military complex America, where you're forced to just repeat the same actions again and again and again, and only, you know, only the kind of individual force of the monster that lives inside you properly controlled is able to kind of deliver any justice, you know, which, like I say, is a horribly sad and horribly nihilistic way to look at the world. But it does make for good television. <laughs> yeah, and it's, I mean, obviously, it's the Jekyll and Hyde archetype, but it always seems like there's more pathos to the Incredible Hulk, even though he's a ridiculous big green man. <laughs> well, because um, he, because he looks so crap as the big green man, and because yeah, it's just spray painted, isn't he? Yeah, they couldn't Basically. really do that much, and obviously, it's probably quite expensive to get that big bloke in to do those bits. So they have to focus really on the characters and on the human relationships and on the conflicts much more than any superhero property would dare to do now, you know. Yeah, so it's 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 really something. I, I can definitely recommend seeking out that that show. You can kind of drop in anywhere, I think, and you'll see something. Um, albeit, you know, fifty minutes, which is a lot for <laughs> modern modern kind of patiences, including mine. Yeah. Is it, it's interesting what you mentioned about the sort of pessimism of a lot of seventies media. And I think it's a very general point, but I think what you say about Vietnam is really is really true. Like the hangover of that definitely rat, like rippled through fiction for a decade afterwards. I'm thinking specifically at the moment about the very first Rambo film, which was released in the early '80s, actually. I think, but it's a film about PTSD. It's about a guy who comes back from Vietnam and can't function in society anymore. And it's another again, it's what Rambo became after that was the kind of big flashy happy ending montage stuff that you describe the way that film series started out was much more bitter yeah yeah it's a kind of really sensitive meditation on on trauma (laughs) yeah it is which then became about a man inflicting it (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah exactly is there anything else you've been watching Uh, so i've uh on the recommendation of uh, one of our uh, discord listeners i've been starting to watch dark which is a german tv series I'm watching on Netflix, I think. Check the show notes, I'll put the links in. And it's this very powerful true detective vibes to it, in that it's a kind of there there are children disappearing in this small town Germany where it rains all the time and is surrounded by oppressive forests. And lurking on the edge of the town is this uh nuclear power plant that's just billowing steam out oppressively all the time. There's also a sense that you get this from the very first episode that there are events repeating, tragedies repeating from 30 years ago. And you follow kids in the town and some of the older parents as they try and suss out where children have gone, what's happened to them. And they find bodies that are mutilated in very, very strange ways that creates a kind of horror vibe, but also raises loads of questions like, why did this child, why is his face half melted? And why are why have his eardrums exploded? That's that's essentially like the the first question you come out of the first episode with. Yeah, but it's also it's also very moodily shot. It's got a really good glissando ridden soundtrack, which create which is never stops. It's always going. It's hardly any silence at the show. Mm. So there's always this kind of hum of unease going underneath the, the characters. I find it very hard to follow because I've had this terrible problem when actors look very similar to one another. <laughs> I literally, I was like. So are you his parent or are you the friend of the family? And it gets even more complicated when, and again, it's this first episode thing, the concept of time travel is introduced. <laughs> I don't think that ever helps a plot. <laughs> time, uh, time travel is just, uh, it's fun in a kind of quantum leap way, 
But if you're actually trying to structure an entire mystery around it, it's because it's incredibly hard to follow. I think you have to be you have to signpost time travel stuff very clearly. Especially if you've got a guy in the show, like two guys in the show who both have brown hair. I always think, how how could you possibly do that to me? I have two guys, both with brown hair. How am I supposed to tell them apart? I have exactly the same problem. <laughs> it's like Give me a redhead, a blonde, yeah. and brown. Like I, I do identify characters by their hairstyle. Um, I've been having this this problem terribly with extenders at the moment, actually, uh, which is which is very good. But all of the men have exactly the same haircuts and and uh, short cropped beards, and uh, I can't criticise them because I have exactly the same haircut and <laughs> short cropped beard. <laughs> and it, it's the style of the times. But it does mean like I don't, I can't tell them from Adam. Like I just don't know who they are, and I forget constantly what their relationships with one one another are, and. Uh, I know that makes me a very shallow viewer, but I think it is important. Like, it, it does matter that you're able to quickly, at the start of a scene, identify everyone's relationships to, to be able to follow the plot. Having said that, Dark is very atmospheric, and in, I'm intrigued enough by the mystery to stick with it, though I'm going to have to read Wikipedia to figure out what the hell's going on <laughs> at some point. Uh, obviously, like a lot of the questions aren't supposed to be resolved. You're supposed to still be confused in the first few episodes, but it does have a kind of an interesting almost like a not so strange things is a modern reference stand by me as well but with supernatural horror as well yeah um yeah so it's an interesting mashup of stuff and if you like feeling gloomy it's good for that as well <laughs> yeah it sounds great I've, i saw that recommendation as well so i'm definitely going to get on that very soon it's occurred to me there's a very peculiar art <laughs> to looking up the wikipedia article for a show to check out the distinction between the characters whilst not spoiling the plot of the rest of the show for you, which I imagine lots of people do. <laughs> yeah, so what I do is um, I sort of squint at the yeah. screen, and sort of, so the vision is blurred. I, I'm, I scan a, a word that is relevant to what I'm doing, and I'll sort of like, I'll block my, my vision out with my hands, and then just read that sentence and be like, okay, cool, I know where I am now. Um, <laughs> Uh, yeah, yeah, I feel like you could start a cult on that. It's like sort of neurolinguistic programming, a sort of <laughs> yeah, blurry selective reading. <laughs> yeah, it's a uh, call it uh, yeah the Tom Senior technique of uh, <laughs> not spoiling things for yourself. Uh, this is terrible though. Like it's terrible for sports stuff as well. I was going to talk about Formula One actually. I might do that briefly. Please do. Yes, uh, and the thing about like streaming services for sports is that constantly this is a big bugbear of mine. Is they just put the score on the screen before you watch the thing yeah. it's like well the point this is emergent sport is emergent drama and a lot of the tension comes from not knowing what's going to happen next and who's going to win that's uh, pretty much the reason i watch it uh, so actually just putting up results without spoiler gaps I, I hate that stuff like bt sport is terrible for it as well but yes uh, yeah so i'll talk about Formula one actually i just the reason i wanted to mention f1 is that sports coverage is so I don't think I've ever seen it critiqued properly. I'm not saying that like I'm in a position to do that, but I think I'd, I'd like to raise it and talk about it because it's one of the most popular forms of television. People will pay a lot of money for a Sky subscription to watch uh, the Premiership. And these uh, licenses go for millions, sometimes billions of, uh, of dollars. So it's quite an important cultural artifact. And I sort of wanted to celebrate Formula One for just being an incredible act of broadcasting. Because it could be the most boring spectacle in the world. It's literally cars doing 50 laps of the same track. But they have fantastic commentators and they have incredible like onboard cameras and augmented reality UI overlays that let you know exactly when they're shifting gears, exactly what speed they're going, 
and even what g-forces are being exerted on as, as they go around a chicane or something and that level of information and how reactive it is uh, creates a fantastic sense of tension and i just think that uh i've watched it on sky i think uh channel four used to do good coverage as well um but yeah i just wanted to say that was brilliant i think like uh as a mass effort to bring that sport to the world it's almost flawless Yes, it's funny. There's something almost monolithic about the way that F1 is is presented in that, like, uh, all that brushed concrete, I mean, literally monolithic, all that kind of brushed concrete and um, mm. screeching sound. There's something very uh, sort of primal about it almost. Like, you know, I, I, I've never really been into it, but my dad uh, is a huge F1 fan. And, like, even on our crappy early 90s television while he was watching it, you know, uh, the sounds <laughs> just really like physical and yeah, the, uh, and forceful. The, the, the shrieking of um, rubber burning away. Yeah, but uh, they have to obviously change tires several times throughout the race because they're just they're on fire almost because <laughs> like, they're going so so fast. And the idea that uh, just that the cars are engineered to the extent that if they didn't have a lot of the spoilers, they would just take off. <laughs> they, they would literally take off into the air. That, that downforce is such a big part of Formula One and, and doing that efficiently without sacrificing uh, the ergonomics and the, the slipstream kind of value of uh, the shape of the car. Um, and the commentators are insightful enough to bring me that knowledge, even though I don't own a car, <laughs> I can't drive, um, but they still create a sense of, um, they bring you into that world and explain it so well that i actually kind of feel like i know stuff about the sport even though i i, I kind of don't you know what i mean yeah. um the best sports commentators do that uh nfl commentators are brilliant at this as well it's an incredibly complicated sport and they do most of their work is just explaining what's going on because you can't even see what's going on in an nfl play yeah i used to watch i got quite into darts a few years ago um oh yeah and that was when sid waddell was still with us and he was oh, um, and you know yeah, and everyone's everyone's very fond of of some of those excellent quotes of his about you know uh describing uh comparing jockey wilson to alexander the great and all that sort of stuff <laughs> um but actually just watching him do a run of the mill uh, match was fascinating because even when he's not making excellent literary references the <laughs> way he's describing the syntax of the game and and the mo- modes of the game and the the tactics that are on display was kind of telepathic for one thing and also mm. um endlessly digestible to a layman as well like me i don't understand anything and i can't do the counting fast enough uh, yeah. that you sort of Likewise. need need for high level mass uh, darts sorry um and he was, yeah, just wonderful at that and making it interesting um, for whoever was watching. I was really, uh, I find um, darts fascinating as well, and snooker for a different reason. But um, darts is great because, again, there's this numbers game going on, uh, but there's also always a massive piss up happening in the background. <laughs> uh, and I, as I watch, I enjoy watching the darts players and their skill, but I also enjoy watching the characters that kind of emerge in the background. <laughs> And I'm trying to evaluate how drunk they are at any given moment, uh, especially when the, the pictures of Lager come out. Uh, and I, I actually, like, once all this virus nonsense is over, I'd love to go watch some darts, actually. I think it'd be a really good laugh. Yeah, I've, I've gone to see it live. I went to see it at the O2. And we're, oh, well. the AV setup was so shite because we couldn't, we couldn't see the board, obviously, because we were miles away. Yeah. But also, they didn't have any screens up that were big enough for you to see those either. So we're just sitting in a room with drinking, some, drinking getting really <laughs> drunk. A man at the front. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was very, very strange. To, to return to uh, F1 briefly, my favorite bit of F1, personally speaking, is the bit where they interview all the drivers after the race. <laughs> yeah. Because F1, 
F1 drivers are almost by definition the most boring people who have ever existed. It's because weird, isn't it? they are millionaires who only care about making their cars go faster and faster by like percentage points that are like five decimal points past zero. You know, they're just, and it's yeah. always, they ask them like a long and involved question and they'll kind of shrug a Germanic shrug and go like, well, the car was not so fast. Maybe, <laughs> yeah, maybe right. tomorrow the car will be a bit faster, you know? <laughs> and then it's like 20 identical interviews with the same man in different bodies from different countries driving different cars, shrugging and thinking about how they can squeeze out an extra 0.0001% out of their car the next day. It's really true because a lot of, a, a bunch of Formula One films have come out in the last sort of five, 10 years. And um, some have been pretty good actually. And, um, but the glamour of the sport as it doesn't turn into charisma on the part of the people who actually performing the sport. In fact, I I'm, I'm, I much prefer watching the pit crew uh, and seeing their like very earnest, delighted reactions when the, their their driver gets an overtake or they do a really good pit stop, and, and that's like more genuine emotion than drivers who just seem to be eternally calm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But yeah. Great. So, um, in this next bit. We've got another list feature. Hooray! Uh, again, I got, I need, I've still got to come up with some interesting um, sort of labels for these segments. Uh, but yeah, so it's vintage British TV shows. Um, and if not set a particular time limit on it, I think the old, I think the newest one I've got is about 1992. Um, but uh, yeah, we just want to talk about, because we, we referenced this in the last podcast about how much good stuff there is in the archives, uh, especially in the UK, and how surreal they can seem to us as modern viewers um so yeah i think we just wanted to talk about that so i wonder jamie what your first choice would be so my first choice is the uh early 80s uh, sitcom ever decreasing circles ah. um which uh is by the same writing team that did the good life and also stars um richard Bryars. Uh, from that show in a, in a in a much different role. The central premise of the show is that um, Richard Bryars and Penelope Wilton, who plays his wife, are a married couple living somewhere suburban. It might be Royslip, um, rather than Surbiton of <laughs> The Good Life. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I can't talk. I'm literally 15 minutes away from Surbiton where I am sat right now. <laughs> <laughs> um, and Richard Bryars' character is what, the modern world would probably understand as a someone with obsessive compulsive disorder, someone with very bad anxiety, depression. The show itself is uh, oh, and they have a neighbour played by Peter Regan who is perfect. He's Mister Perfect. He, I think, he used to be in the army. Um, mm. And there is a there is a tension between Egan and uh, Penelope Wilton's character that is never spoken but is ever present. Uh, and Richard Bryer's character is too caught up in his own anxiety to ever really notice that. Um, right. It's kind of fascinating because it is that kind of 70s, 80s sitcom, um, but it is, like The Incredible Hulk, tinged with darkness and despair and sadness. Richard Bryer's character is so worried all the time and so obsessed with his own image and his own kind of sense of safety that he misses everything that's going on around him Mm. um and the people around him love him and respect him and care about him um and yet he still sort of misses out on life because of that and it slowly drains you know the people around him too i think key to what makes the show so good is richard bryce himself you know and obviously like 
later on Kenneth Branagh would kind of get Richard Bryce into like big Shakespeare productions and stuff like that and kind of you know really elevate him as an actor and it deservedly so actually because he takes what would be a kind of relatively run-of-the-mill part of a kind of you know neurotic and infuses it with a genuine sense of humanity even whilst the show is still like oh ding dong who's that at the door you know it's got that kind of vibe that to kind it. Of cheesy you know yeah and, and the sort of shaky sets and the kind of slightly flat sense of humor um but it works um and all the kind of players in it are are really tactile feeling they feel like real people um even the kind of comedy neighbors on the other side um and yeah it's just a it's a it's a it's a portrait of obsession and depression uh that is styled in the kind of cheesy ways of the time and 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 really good and there's all of that's on youtube for free if you if you want to look for it oh fantastic huh. that's great stuff um i want to talk about cracker <laughs> cracker one of my favorite shows of all time i think even though uh it sort of like petered out towards the end uh it's a show about a, a sort of <laughs> how to describe it it's not a detective uh but fitz is a kind of psychologist or a and he's the cracker he cracks open criminals in uh in the interviews and gets them to reveal everything he sort of digs into their psychology and uh ultimately breaks them and that's a big part of the show, but it's also um, a, a crucible for some of the best writers of those decades. So it was, uh, Jimmy McGovern created it and wrote most of the first two seasons, but also Paul Abbott uh, came on, I think in the second season, and he wrote some episodes, brilliant episodes as well. Um, and Paul Abbott obviously went on to do, uh, he wrote Shameless, but before that, and I think the same year that he was writing Cracker, he wrote State of Play, which happens to be one of the best six part thrillers on British television ever. <laughs> and he just sort of casually did that. Like everyone accused it to him of uh, just doing kitchen sink dramas. And then he just wrote a really good modern thriller starring John Sim. And uh, yeah, he, he was a great talent. Uh, so Cracker is great because partly because of the performances of Robbie Coltrane is a classic example of a comedian who actually turns his hand to serious acting and does an incredible job. It's just amazing. Like a lot of comedians do this, actually. They turn out to be very good actors. Uh, and he's an alcoholic. He's overweight. He's a gambling addict, um, but also a kind of genius of human psychology, uh, which is uh, quite a tired, uh, broken, damaged man trope, <laughs> if you know what I mean. Um, the idea that it's a, uh, Genius must come with suffering, and the suffering and damage of the person contributes to their genius. Uh, it's, this has been attached to artists for hundreds of years, and uh, it's, it's bullshit. But uh, the, the reason it works is because uh, Robbie Coltrane is so, so good in that role. And the, the main reason also, apart from the amazing writing and the fact that they can just get two people into a room uh, to have a conversation for 20 minutes straight and have it just be absolutely riveting television, uh, is the fact that also the show draws on real life events like the Hillsborough disaster in uh, recent history in, in the UK and turns that into drama where in a, a way that's brave in a way that many shows would just shy away from. Um, there's also like, it's a very early example of like a relatively sensitively produced um, rape storyline where, but that actually gives Penn Halligan agency in her experiences with that. And it's a, uh, Again, just fascinating television is also very socially sensitive um, and smart in a way that I don't think many other television series at the time were. 
No, or or indeed since, to be honest. I think yeah. I think there yeah. is a I think in a couple of other shows that are gonna come up in our lists, there was a uh, there was a robustness to the drama back then, which um is not seen so often <laughs> these days, I think. Yeah, I think yeah, I think it uh, it comes down to a matter of bravery really, like what you're willing to say. Like Cracker had things to say about Britain. Yeah. It, it it just definitely did, and that that sings through the show. And this comes down to, um, like, it even touches on uh, a psychopath's uh, avenue into football hooliganism and how that turns into terrorism. And yeah, that's the of, uh, Robert Carlyle episode, isn't it? And yes, which is one of the highlights. Like uh, Jim McGovern and Carlyle in the same room, and that when they start singing football anthems to each yeah. other, <laughs> amazing. I mean, it's so so good. It's just incredible television. Yeah, and, Paul, uh, yeah, you wrote, Paul Abbott wrote that one, I think. Yeah, yeah, man. I love Paul Abbott. He's great. Um, yeah, so I think just this is a must-watch if you like television. You've got to see it. It, there's, it gets dodgy. There's a, a dodgy kind of reboot set in Manchester. There's a, a dodgy Hong Kong episode. Um, <laughs> but the first two in a bit seasons are uh, outstanding. Really good stuff. Yeah, definitely. It's brilliant. Brilliant show. Uh, so what's your next one, Jamie? Uh, just a Boys Game which is a um, TV movie from, I think, the late 70s. Might be 78 as well. Uh, it's on YouTube as well uh, in a watchable um, version. And it is a shortish film. I think it's an hour. Um, maybe, no, it might be longer than an hour. It might be 90 minutes or something like that. But anyway, it is a film written by Peter McDougall, who was a Scottish writer, a direct contemporary of Billy Connolly, um, uh, and by contemporary, I mean he worked in the um, Govan shipyard with him as a welder, uh, and, oh, yeah. Yeah. and uh, wrote really good um, uh, shows throughout the eighties. He's still alive, um, but would write kind of Glasgow set um, drama in the in the nineteen eighties and early nineties. Just a Boys Game is a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant film about a young gangster essentially a young guy um who is kind of involved in organized crime and in violence and in drinking and in the kind of hard man hard bastard culture of uh glasgow which at the time was sort of classed as one of the most violent cities in europe i think right not a place to you know tread lightly um and alongside all this sort of a sort of story about him trying to kind of make it make it as a man about town he's got this grandfather who is dying and his grandfather was this kind of hard man bastard uh uh crazy motherfucker who he aspires to be and who he is desperate to get this guy's um approval and uh attention from as he dies and it all goes to shit everything goes wrong and it builds to this final scene between the two of them, which I won't spoil, but is one of the greatest denouements, I think, in in British drama history. Oh, well. The moment it ends on is perfectly pitched and perfectly poised and devastating. <laughs> um, yeah, so that's that's just a really good watch, I think. Not least for the kind of footage you get of of um uh nineteen late seventies Glasgow. Which just does seem like a kind of a real, <laughs> a real hell, of world. real hell of a place. Um, mm. uh, side note: I did watch the first episode of Brond, which you mentioned last week, which is interestingly Biased. kind of of a piece uh, with that, and is also available in low quality on YouTube. Um, mm. 
and that show starring a practically fetal John Hanna um, uh, and a kind of crazy psychotic um, mystery that goes on there is a kind of interesting yin to just the boys game. Uh, Jan, you know, and I, I, uh, I enjoyed Brunt. I thought it was a fascinatingly daring and experimental piece of television. It's um, a, it is a mess, though. As well, it's a complete mess. It's funny because you know my own father is also a television writer and is Scottish, and he would later write a film called Govan Ghost Story, which you can watch on YouTube and is very good as well. Which is a, which is a ghost story set in in Glasgow around the time, and it was like there was a big push at the time all through the 80s, uh, to have kind of what were then considered minority voices <laughs> uh, writing mm. drama. You know, my dad is a, a, a white man. But at the time, to be Scottish and to be not from Cambridge and not from that yes. part of the world, and people like Peter McDougall um, and Alan Bleasdale were given these opportunities, you know, where it's much harder now. And obviously, minority voices mean something different now. Um quite rightly you know but it's it is interesting that like there are no places on british television right now where people can write an hour of drama and have it put on from a standing start you know without uh without a huge amount of careerism already going on you know and these things used to be very um available and they're not now and so actual minority voices not the <laughs> scottish minority voices uh these days are, are slightly un- are very underserved by these slots um which is, I'll get off my soapbox now, but it is funny to see quite how much time was devoted to let people who hadn't written for television before and otherwise wouldn't have an opportunity being given that opportunity. And things like Just a Boy's Game and, uh, you know, many other shows kind of came out of that effort, which is non-existent now. Yeah, I think there's a theme emerging here that um, a lot of modern television, to me, feels very, very safe in terms of what it will or won't touch upon as a subject matter. Um and that's not true of everything. I, I still need to watch um, I Might Destroy You, which I think is one of the sh- current shows that is actually um, investigating pro- deep themes. Yeah, which is, um, which is fantastic. Mm, yeah, yeah, I've yet to watch it, but I've, I've heard such good things. And it's, it's part I'm of, watch it next week. Part of what makes it good is it isn't smoothed over by the homogeneity of of lots of television. It's idiosyncratic and that makes it thrilling. <laughs> yeah, that's um, rather than just kind of the same bland expressions over and over again. And it's why hopefully commissioners will start embracing voices like Michaela Coles a bit more because mm. I think there was a, you know, not entirely I don't know, just pick my words very carefully here. I think, you know, I don't want to call the commissioners racist, you know, I don't think it's quite that, but I think it is a tendency to like be really, really risk averse with with the voices that they put to the fore. And often that means and has meant demonstrably that, that, um, uh, black and Asian and other people from whose voices are less re- represented have not had that opportunity, you know. Um, and I'm glad that seems to be picking up a bit, although there are a lot of ways to go before we're anywhere close to where we need to be. Yeah, I feel like the BBC in particular are very vocal about wanting BM, uh, BAME voices in their writing writers' rooms. Um, and, like, we see some evidence of that. But, yeah, as you say, it's a... They've got a long road to walk. <laughs> They've got a long road to walk, and I think they could probably do with making a few more leaps uh, yeah. to start things off. <laughs> yeah, agreed. Shall I, shall I do my next one? Yes. Um, so I want to talk about Edge of Darkness. Uh, this is one of the most famous British thrillers. 
ever, I think. It was just incredibly acclaimed. Um, and with good reason, because the way it's, it starts out as a very conventional thriller about a guy whose daughter is murdered. Uh, again, this is just first episode stuff. Um, and it ends up tapping into much deeper concerns of the time. Uh, so there's this, uh, one of the best scenes in the show is actually in the first episode where he's going through his daughter's room, his teenage daughter's room, and, and she's gone. And he's just like investigating and he finds just normal teenage stuff, just magazines, you know, uh, clothes, that kind of thing. And then he opens a drawer and he finds a Geiger counter and a gun. And suddenly you're in a different world. Suddenly he's like, what the hell was she involved with for the, to own these items? And uh, the way that develops is, is it, over the course of six episodes, incredible. Um, it's starring Bob Peck and uh, it's written by uh, Troy Kennedy Martin um, and it's music by Eric Clapton, of all people. And, and uh, Bob Peck, who uh, I certainly know as the uh, clever girl guy from Jurassic Park. <laughs> of Perhaps his most famous line. Yes. That one, I think. I think that's, that might be ultimately what he's remembered for. Yes. I mean, it's not, I mean, it's pretty great. Um, I think it if I was good. him, it would be, uh, you know, sadly has departed. But if I was him, I think it would be a toss up between his majestic, um, hypnotic performance in Edge of Darkness and being jumped on by a guy in a suit in <laughs> Jurassic Park. Uh, so his, um, I, lo- I love the way he performs grief in that show. Like, uh, he's, his face is constantly contorted with grief throughout the entire thing. And even as he kind of ventures into the darkness and into the depths of the mystery, um, he never lets go of that. That's still the main thing that drives him, even though there are other horrors waiting for him down the line. Um, and it's just, yeah, it's a magnificent performance, I think. It was also one of the first shows, I think, to do that thing, which is, um, uh, you know, seen quite often in, in in things like that, which is to have the dead person as someone you can sort of talk to and bounce ideas right. off. Yeah, um, yeah, for sure. In a kind which of is- in a kind of symbolic way. I mean, there's a show on the BBC right now called Life, of which I will speak no more, having watched the first two episodes. Um, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> <laughs> except to say that it uses that device. Um, you know, the, uh, a, a character who is deceased being this kind of symbolic sounding board for. Characters uh, thought, yeah, and I think in Edge of Darkness it was it was done particularly well. Yeah, that's um, I think the reason why that works for me is that I think that's the thing that actually happens to people who are recently bereaved, mm. um, where they actually talk, have imaginary conversations with the person who they've lost, um, and I think that is actually if done well, which it is in Edge of Darkness, is actually quite poignant, um, and it, it sort of reinforces his motivation for the entire thing is that. He can't deal with the loss of his daughter. He just can't deal with it. And so he pushes himself into ever more risky, dangerous situations to somehow solve it, but it can't be solved. And that's one of the sort of the tragedy at the heart of the show. Ah, so so good. There's also a very bad film made of it with uh, Mel Gibson. <laughs> Mel Gibson. Uh, talk about actors who don't have the capacity to, <laughs> to play that role. Um, that's unfortunate. Yeah. Uh, dear listeners please don't watch the film no don't watch it go back and watch the tv series it's brilliant <laughs> um uh, do you have a third one yeah i've actually got five but i know one of them one of them's the same as yours so actually, um actually, we're doubling it <laughs> uh which one shall i choose because I, I will just do three um 
Yeah, I'm going to say my third choice is Thunderbirds plus assorted Jerry Anderson wank is how I've written it in my... Very uh, good. What a choice. Um, yeah. Because this is just taking all of his work in the 60s as, as a singular uh, organism, which is to say uh, Thunderbirds, uh, Stingray, Joe 90, and my sort of second favourite after Thunderbirds, um, Captain Scarlet. Captain Scarlet, the Mysterons. Yep, I remember them all. <laughs> and the Mysterons. Um, yeah, just amazing TV shows, really, which uh, Jerry Anderson invented a whole new form of of kind of filming and producing a show, which he called Super Marionation, I believe. Um, yeah. And they're, they're all, again, to return to a theme earlier in our talk about reusing footage constantly. Mm-hmm. Um but he would put on these big, like every episode of Thunderbirds, say, was this big budget disaster movie with right. all these kinds of like mad bits of sci-fi technology and big set piece disasters, you know, um, which to my young eyes were just like amazing. Just, you know, the first episode of Thunderbirds, which is the one where they have to land the plane, which has a bomb I on it. I was about to mention that. On yeah. four separate kind of remote controlled um uh, cars on the on the on the runaway is just this kind of like masterpiece in tension and action and spectacle, um, and all his shows have that in spades. I mean, they're ridiculous and they're camp, and the Mysterons deciding to tell everyone what their plans were in in sort of semi mystical terms. Yep. <laughs> at the beginning of every episode was a peculiar uh, caprice on their part, um, but generally, I was just as a child and, and going back to them and as, as an adult, they're still kind of magic for their eccentricities and for their kind of, uh, um, uh, you know, for their kind of the sheer size of them and the excessiveness of them. And also the fact that any, whenever anyone turned a switch or pressed a button, it was a real hand, which yes, yes, is, yes. is often a kind of hair-raising moment, like, ooh, <laughs> after, all these, after all these puppets. The flesh has changed. It's this real... Wow. It's this real hand, like deliberately typing in these numbers onto a console. Um. I, 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 yeah, I, I love Thunderbirds. I think one of the great things as a, a young boy watching Thunderbirds is that d- different personalities can invite you to map yourself onto one of the Thunderbird characters. Yeah, um, so I was always, I was always Virgil. That was he was my guy. Yeah. But then other people would be Scotty <laughs> and uh, someone, some weirdo would be Parker <laughs> <laughs> driving a Rolls, uh, Rolls Royce around. Um, uh, and I didn't quite get that from uh, other shows like Stingray was good fun. Captain Scarlet, the fact that he was invincible kind of took a lot of the, <laughs> a lot of the threat and tension out of the show. <laughs> it did. It did. Um, but nonetheless, I, I enjoyed the, the Mistron monologues at the start of each episode. That's it was very good. I mean, in terms of Thunderbirds, I think or maybe this is very revelatory about who I was as a kid, but I think I <laughs> might have thought of myself as the guy who was the one who was sort of prone to fainting fits, who would reveal um, the baddies' oh. plans. Do you remember that guy? Yeah, so he, well, he had big glasses and yeah, kind of... he was like this sort of hippie dude who would like, oh, aging yeah. hippie dude who would kind of hang around. And then the baddie, was he called the Hood or something, the bad guy? The Hood, yeah. And, and he, he had hypnotic powers and, and stuff he had like hypnotic that. Powers which, control. which would cause our guy to kind of fall to the floor in a sort of... B- spasmic old testament <laughs> biblical fashion and deliver clues about what he was about to do i, th- I think his name might have been brains was it is bra- that right was it, was it brains who did that or is that a different character we'll have to, we'll have to check in on that <laughs> yeah i'll check in show notes show notes everyone it's very important to get our thunderbirds characters uh correct uh thunderbirds came back again recently didn't it i think they did um 
a modern version of that in the last couple of years. Yes, that's right. I've they did. Yeah, no, I haven't seen it yet. I mean, it just it it. I just think it's it's so um, impossible to recreate. Um, you know, the magic. I mean, the, the closest anyone's got is um, Team America: World Police, yeah. which is obviously a ten out of ten masterpiece on all 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 counts. But yeah. apart from anything else, manages to really <laughs> tap into the ridiculous spectacle of those. Uh, uh, like, there's loads of stuff I love about uh, Team America. Um, perhaps most of all, very childishly, the bit where a man just vomits for about five minutes straight. <laughs> <laughs> That's really good. Uh, which is very funny. Um, and it just, it, the moment you think it's about to end, it doesn't, and that, like, the joke comes back around and it's funny again. Uh, but yes, uh, the way that they kind of emulated, oh, God, I just remember the sex scene in that as well. Which is <laughs> hilarious. Um, but even the walking motions, the kind of, the old... Uh, yeah. The old, like, lifty-handy... It's very hard to describe, actually, via audio. But there's, there's a particular way that everyone moved around in old Jerry Anderson stuff that they've replicated perfectly. Yeah, there's, like, kind of much imitated in schools at the time where you'd hold your hands in front of you and sort of bounce them lightly. It's zombie-like, and yeah, 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 that's right. Um, <laughs> I, uh, um, uh, I've only been help- I've only been in a cinema where the- everyone in there has been helpless with laughter all the way through twice. Once was Team America World Police, and the other time was Borat. See oh, that, yes, yeah, yeah, and like those are the two times when I've literally been like practically rolling in the aisles, laughing with a whole, you know, hundreds of other people. It's a really amazing feeling. <laughs> I yeah, I only ever, I only saw Borat a couple of months ago, actually, for the first time. Wow, uh, and Borat Two is actually on yeah, its latest se- sequels so. just announced, and I watched the trailer today. It didn't look that promising, I have to say, but it felt like they got everything they wanted to do out of the first one. But we'll see. Um, anyway, apparently, trolls Mike Pence, so that'll probably be worth watching. That sounds good. Yeah, worth worth the price of admission. Uh, in uh extraordinary naked fight scene in Borat. Yeah, it's, it's really has good. Not, be, not been repeated anywhere else. And uh I've got to say those two actors are very brave to do that, that scene. Yeah. <laughs> nothing nothing goes unseen. No. That's... <laughs> uh, but uh, it's the way it mixes a scene like that, which is obviously like staged with reality, where Borat runs naked into a genuine conference. Yeah. <laughs> has to be escorted by security out, which is extremely <laughs> good. Uh there's there's some very good kind of background jokes in that show, like the uh, the bear's head that turns up in his fridge. <laughs> I don't know if you spotted that. Oh yeah, God, yeah, I forgot about that. There's loads of hidden little background jokes that like, they've meticulously thought about it. Which uh, <laughs> I need to watch it again. It's one of those things where you watch it again and you just see more jokes, which is uh, I love that kind of show. There's a sketch in Borat which I think is a sort of triumph, which is where he's. It's not a sketch. It's a, it's a real guy he's talking to in a supermarket where he's walking along a line of. Um, uh, cheese. <laughs> this is from the TV show. He's walking mm-hmm. on a line of cheese and asking the guy to confirm whether or not the stuff he's pointing at is cheese. So he's, he's <laughs> saying, "He's saying, what's this?" And the guy's going, "It's cheese." He says, "And what's this?" He says, "It's cheese." Uh, and this uh, also cheese. And it goes, <laughs> it goes on for whole minutes and includes him walking back to the top of the line <laughs> in the supermarket to go to the products underneath. And this is it, rice? He's like, "No, this is also cheese." <laughs> It's very good. Such a stupid joke. It's uh, really, it is really stupid, but it is it is that thing of like when something gets boring, just keep doing it until it gets funny again. It comes back around. It's a Stuart yeah. Lee method. Yeah, um, that's awesome. Uh, so I think that our, our final choice uh, 
I think we both got the same one. Yeah, uh, this is crazy. Yeah, by accident. We yeah. didn't know until just before we recorded this that we'd accidentally picked the same one, which is probably a sign of how interesting it is. So, uh, yeah, if you want to introduce that, John. So it's it's GBH from uh, 1992, I think. Um, yes. Or 93, maybe. Written by Alan Bleasdale, previously, who wrote uh, Boys from the Black Stuff, which I almost included, but I decided to choose GBH instead because it is... I don't know, more unusual in many ways. It mm. is about a character played by Robert Lindsay, um, uh, who is based on Derek Hatton, uh, who I'd first heard of, I think, yeah. after I watched GBH, um, and sort of thought, oh, who's this? What's this all about? You know, and Derek Hatton was a, a counselor in Liverpool in the 80s, part of the militant tendency Trotskyist wing of the Labour Party who set purposefully illegal budgets for the education side of things and was summarily dismissed. It's funny, if you look at the sort of, if you Google this show, you get some articles written a few years ago revisiting it, and they sort of talk in the sort of, where did Derek Hatton go? Whatever happened to him? And of course, Mm. he was in the news in the last couple of years because... um, he was readmitted to the Labour Party after, you know, being absent for a long time and is a, um, you know, has been associated with Jeremy Corbyn and that kind of whole rise of, of that sort of stuff brought him back into the fore. Yeah. The show itself is basically about this corrupt <laughs> local councillor. His party, I don't think, is ever specified, but it's clearly a kind of, you know... Obviously Labour. Uh, obviously Labour. And his kind of sparring with um, the local education authority and mostly uh, a character played by uh, Michael Palin, who plays the headmaster of a, of a, of a local school who he kind of... Mm. Um, who he persecutes. Um, and it is a kind of... It's quite a... a you know, I've only watched it once. I found it quite overwhelming. There's so much in there. You could uncharitably call it baggy, I think, because there is so much material and so many characters and so much going on. However, its excesses, ex- excesses are for me what makes it successful. It's fascinating, bizarre, and kind of, it just, it feels its identity and its character is unlike anything else I've ever seen. It's kind of like a, it's almost like a kind of folk surrealism, political drama. Um, And yeah, it just, that's kind of why, you know, put it on this list for me because it just feels so apart from anything else. And it feels like a writer as good as Alan Bleasdale, like taking off all his filters and just like really swinging for the fences. Yeah. It's definitely, again, we talked about Cracker earlier, but this is definitely a series that is about real things in British culture at the time, um, especially, and is was very unafraid to be political about it. Uh, but at the same time, y- y- there are very surreal moments, and a lot of the series is about uh, Palin's character and his terrible anxiety disorder and how that manifests. Like he's there, so it's a, it's a show about two people who are kind of in different positions of authority, but kind of minor authority, like a local councillor. And the headmaster, and about how like they have opposite personalities, and it's just interesting to watch them clash. But when Michael Payne's character occasionally stands up for himself and actually fights back, there's real drama to that. Um, and it's yeah, it's just exciting to watch. There's a strange kind of like it kind of tries to give you the sense of anxiety that Payne's character has, just with sort of random obscure scenes that have nothing to do with the plot, like finding electrical wires cut down in the field and a child unconscious nearby or something. Yeah. Just a sketch like that, a skit almost, mm. that is just to kind of uh, 
creates this sense of underlying anxiety for him and like what he what he's afraid of and his sense of responsibility for the young people he's in charge of as well uh yeah it's it's pretty special and likewise unique there's a there's a fantastic speech which i actually watched today uh which palin makes late in the series which is this kind of defense of centrism against Mm -hmm. hard left uh politics which is just you know aside from anything else fascinating to watch uh, in the current age of of left politics, and and kind of you know, I wonder what Bleasdale thinks about the whole stuff now. You know, it's yeah, it's, it's yeah. amazing that we're still having the same conversation that is going on in that in that show. It's also, I think, one of the two great Michael Palin sort of straight acting mm. performances. The other one, I would say, is even though it's not quite straight, is is his role in Brazil, where I think he's like, of course, yeah. just unbelievably good and terrifying. <laughs> He's amazing. I, I think, like working with Gillian on that, like it just seems like those guys know it so, so well that Palin just int- intuited what he was going for perfectly. Uh, Brazil's a great film. Yeah, a great film. Um, yeah. So GPH so it, in, it came out in 1991. Oh, 91. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a bit earlier than we thought. Uh, I don't know where to get it, but again, I'll research it. It's um, in the UK. I think you can just watch it on all four. I think it's quite easy to find. Oh, great. So yeah. Hmm. Uh, yeah. It, it's one of those shows that. Um, it reflects a version of England that I don't recognize as someone who was born in 1985. And that's kind of one of the fascinating things about these vintage series is that like politics was so different then. Um, and the social struggles that were happening then were so, are so alien to me now that it, I can't even believe it's the same country. Um, I don't know if you've experienced anything like that, Jamie, watching these things. Yeah. I, I mean, I feel exactly the same. It's, and I think to be honest, it probably gives GBH a bit more force um, than it might do if, if you were there at the time, actually, because I don't know, there's something about that, you know, almost in a similar way to ever decreasing circles, really. It's such an, you know, the past is a foreign country and like, you know, these sort of, to, to sort of spend time in these places is, is it's a real thrill if you missed out on it first time round, you know, mm. the world of, um, uh, you know, sectarian left politics in the north of England in the 1980s. You know, it's kind of the resonation that, you know, that struggle resonates to the present day, you know. And so it's fascinating to see something that is in direct communication with that, um, uh, from that kind of perspective, like Bleasdale gives you. So, yeah, I think for me, it is like almost going on holiday in a funny kind of way. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's just fascinating because um, I think, like, not to get too political about it, but we've been under like conservative government for a decade now, and so I think our reference points for the left and how it used to operate in Britain, uh, we just don't have those reference points. And the only reference points they have for that are history books and television shows like this. Uh, and actually, I feel not educated because obviously it's fiction, but I feel like I get a sense of what my parents and grandparents experienced when they were younger as well, which kind of connects me to earlier generations absolutely and it's you know it's not a a, you know a docudrama or or one of those kind of things where um uh tony blair is a character or anything like that you know it's 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 weird and baggy and strange but for me all the more illuminating because of it because you get a sense of the kind of the psychosis of the time you know the 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 madness of the time and, and the stuff that people found excessive to them back then as well so yeah i think it's 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 always going to be something i'm drawn to i think yeah and Lindsay is just brilliantly frantic throughout and uh, <laughs> he's really good 
Yeah. I think the parts were originally cast the other way around and then they swapped them. Interesting. I don't think, I don't think, I think Palin is too gentle to do what Lindsay does through that role. Yes. Um, They're both brilliant in it though. Uh, So that's it. That's a, that's a good raft of shows we've discovered there. Um, So what we'll talk about next is we're going to compare marriage story. And I'm thinking of ending things Two fascinating films that came out this year, I believe, and have some interesting comparison points. So here we are to talk about two fascinating films, very different, yes, in some ways thematically similar. Uh, so we're talking about my story and I'm thinking of ending things. And Jamie, I wonder which one you'd like to start with. Yeah, so Marriage Story I watched quite a while ago um, and I'm thinking of ending things I watched very recently. And it was funny kind of after watching I'm Thinking of Ending Things, I was kind of ranting at it, ranting about it at my partner because mm. I loved it and it made me quite tense and wound up. Um, and there were things I really didn't like about it, but there were, but also as the film was going on, I was kind of completely consumed by it. I just like, I kind of lost myself in that film and it's a very long film, you know, in both yeah, actual and kind of emotional and kind of, you know, even just to say it boredom tones, really lots of long conversations in cars in cars. <laughs> yeah. And I found myself completely caught up in the act of watching it in a way a film hasn't done for me for a quite a long time, actually. Um, and the, the time flew by in a funny kind of way. Um, which is funny considering what the sort of the story of the film is. Um, and I, while sort of ranting about it to my partner, I was, I kind of thought of a marriage story because in a way it couldn't be more different, as you said. And in another way, it's very, very similar. It is, you know, they are both films about the relationships, I think, between men and women and, the respective experiences of men, women and relationships and the differing perspectives of, yeah. uh, and what you project onto other people. Mm. So I'm thinking of ending things and that just sort of suggested myself to me as a, a comparison point. So I'm thinking of ending things is, is on Netflix. It's a Netflix original film. I think it is written and directed by Charlie Kaufman, who's, you know, uh, best known for writing being John Malkovich, um, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, Synecdoche, New York, um, Anomalisa. Very, very good writer, I think, who's written yeah, I agree. many scripts, which I think lots of people really admire, not least for their ability to kind of break out of traditional story structures and do things in unusual orders and in unusual ways. Adaptation is another one, which is a film I've seen precisely once, had an amazing experience with, and will probably never watch again because I want to sort of preserve that in my head. Kind of Is that the Nick, Nick Cage one? Yes. Writing? Yes. That's yeah, right. That's very good. It's yep. a film about script writing, which kind of folds on in on itself in so it many ways. It itself halfway through. Yeah, it's <laughs> yeah, very good. It's, it's very good. So I think of ending things is about a young woman whose name is unclear yep. <laughs> and her boyfriend changes throughout the film, ch- yeah. throughout the film uh, played by Jesse Buckley, who is a revelation. Um, and uh, who my sister tells me is, was on the uh, Andrew Lloyd Webber uh, show. I'd do anything where she was trying, he was trying to find a Nancy. That's where he was. She was first. <laughs> and now she's turning up in uh Films like this, which is extraordinary. And then Jesse Plemons, and then uh, as her boyfriend, who she's thinking of ending things with, 
and they're visiting his parents who are played amazingly as well by Tony Collette and David Thewlis. You couldn't fault the I love four main performances in it. They're all yeah. amazing. <laughs> um, and then the film essentially takes place over them traveling to, staying at, and then returning from uh, visiting his parents. Um, and in the midst of that, there's long conversations about art and poetry and then there is a kind of home scene with the parents who sort of various things seems to be happening with time and space. My favourite bit, yeah. But the whole middle section of the film is dedicated to that yeah. meeting. Yeah. And then the closing act of the film is the drive back and what occurs there. Um, it's based on a novel uh, by Ian Reid, which I think um, uh, is a little bit more literal with how sort of shakes out at the end of the at the end of the story and and kind of reveals yes. what's going on here. Mm-hmm. Uh, I haven't read the book but I've kind of, you know, read up about it on time. You know the sort of um yes. can see, yeah. And it does help to know that after you've seen it actually where the where the book goes because also woven into this narrative is this old janitor <laughs> who right. seems like kind of a non sequitur but becomes incredibly significant uh towards the end of the film. Um and <sighs> It's sort of unclassifiable, really. Uh, it's kind of, they have long conversations. There's stuff done with time. There's stuff done with symbolism. There's stuff done with music and dance. Um, and all this, all all manner of, of, of narrative caprices. But essentially, I think the film is about, <laughs> I'm pausing before I, I, I respond to that, what I just said, because it's like, the film seems to be about the way we project ourselves onto the objects of our desire. And, you know, there's points in this film where the young woman starts um, reading out a review of um, John Cassavetes, A Woman Under the Influence. And we've seen the book of reviews by um, Pauline Kael earlier in the in the film That's in, right. his, in yep. his bedroom. And more so than I think any previous um, Charlie Kaufman film, even more than Synecdoche, New York, it is a film where identity and character is sloshing around and fading in and out and moving between people and personas and and symbolism um, and stuff like that. And so I found it kind of incredibly um, narcotic almost in terms of how much I was taken in by by all that. I don't know how you felt about it, Tom. Yeah, so I think uh, that's a, a brilliant overview of it. And uh, so now we'll dip into spoiler territory because I, I want to talk about the, the, the key that unlocks the film. And it's actually a very sad premise. And the, the film doesn't, I don't think, give you enough clues to really figure this out uh, deliberately because it wants it, to, as you say, to be about relationships and how you sort of, uh, as you say, project yourself onto people that you want to be with. Um, so the, the premise of the film is that uh, the boyfriend, so it's, it's all dreamed up by the janitor. It's him sweeping a floor. And the title, I'm thinking of ending things, has a dual meaning. Uh, I'm thinking of ending things, of course, ending relationship. But it turns out it's a relationship that never even started. Uh, it, and it's all a fantasy about a woman that he fancied once at a party but never had the guts to ask out. Um, and also, like as he's doing this, he's contemplating ending his life and um, it's the, the kind of sadness of missed opportunities but at the same time 
uh, so the boyfriend in this is a total self-insert on the part of the janitor. Uh, and once you realize that, it, be- it becomes even more fascinating because there's a sort of, there's a current of self-hatred going through it. Uh, the way that he's like intellectually belittled uh, by the woman who goes by Lucy at one point and something else at a different point. And she's just a kind of shifting fantasy woman. And the reason this is so difficult to detect in the film is because you have her internal monologue going like she, she's kind of feels like the subject of it, but she's an invention. Uh, and that's why she changes throughout the film. She's a malleable concept. So at the start, she doesn't know who William Wordsworth is. Um, but then by the end, she's his absolute intellectual superior and just like it sort of decimates him, makes it makes him feel small with her knowledge of poetry and her, how articulate she is. Uh, and then in, in between all of that, it's the, that's, a kind of exploration of the dynamics of going to, to the next stage of a relationship where you have to start integrating as a family with other people. Uh, and in that respect, Charlie Kaufman out Lynch's David Lynch for me in that, that middle section. And in terms of like the, the acts are brilliant as well. The mannerisms, the, the, the kind of slightly off placed timing of the conversations, uh, people overstepping and asking questions that are a bit too personal um laughing at inappropriate things and it kind of slowly dissolves over the course of about 45 minutes until everyone's changing age and like young versions of the dad are walking in with the old versions of the mum. um and it is a kind of a kind of nightmare but a very sad one about a man who is kind of trying to dream up something that he wishes was true but he can't dream of a happy situation it, it, they're still falling out they're still having awkward conversations he, he can't imagine the perfect resolution um and there's a very very touching scene at the end once you understand all that there's a very touching scene at the end where he speaks to her um that the old the janitor does he meets her in the hallway uh, and that conversation is incredibly loaded with things that he wished had happened um and the kind of person that he would love to have been with in his long life but never actually found um so i think it's quite profound in that, that sense it feels like, yes, absolutely. I think that's very well put. And it feels like the totality of a life occurring all at once. Um, you know, that sec- middle section where there's a, there's a basement that you're scared of. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the right, way yeah, that yeah. his childhood fears have carried forward, you know. The scratches fact- on the door. Scratches yeah. on the door. The image of the pig with the maggots in his belly, which you can imagine that would be very upsetting to a young person and carries through right until his dying moments. That's right. That's right. And also shot through with the kind of romance of cinema. There's a moment where a fake, the credits for a fake Robert Zemeckis film role, which is hilarious. Um, Yes. Yes. It's the funniest joke in the film, I think. And then later on in the film, I didn't get this, but he accepts an award and reads out the speech from a beautiful mind. Did you realize that's what it was? I didn't actually know. I was wondering about that. The the, the speech he gives is the speech given um, by Russell Crowe in a beautiful mind when he's accepting his award and about to sing his, um, his final song, song, his, um, song swan song swan song from casablanca yes i found it just so fascinating and the bit that i got stuck on was like you know the conversations that they're having about like hipster bro sacred cows like david foster wallace or guy Debord, right. um or they have many of them i can't remember some of the other ones but they're all kind of like i'm a guy at a party and this is how i'm going to impress the girl i'm i'm talking to by jabbering away about you know an in uh, a kind of intellectual shibboleth you know and i couldn't decide whether he was whether the writer was 
I, I felt very uncertain about what I was supposed to feel about that. Mm. I felt, and maybe this is what the film was, you know, trying to do. I felt uncertain about my stake in it, about whether I was supposed to be impressed by their conversations or put off by their conversations or bored um, or kind of outraged that like pages and pages of dialogue are taken from Pauline Kael's review of a woman under the influence mm. um, and songs from other other musicals and literal speeches from other films. The kind of metafictional aspect of it, it makes a lot of sense if you think about it, because we are all the starring player in our own shitty little films, you know. Yes. Um, but I think those sacred cows come with them a kind of assertion of masculinity and um, assertion of kind of uh, patriarchy, which I'm not sure the film properly engages with. And it's probably right to, because it's trying to, it's talking about an imagined woman, an imagined manic picture dream girl, which is a, yeah. which is a thing that he helped define, you know? Um, and the, the film is troubling in how it, it deconstructs that or doesn't deconstruct that. Um, and how cultural touchstones can kind of become gendered. Um, and I think part of the reason why I was so mesmerized by the film is that that split actually kind of became part of how I understood it. You know, uh, we are split, I think, between how much we buy into the jibber jabber. I mean, I'm someone who can talk pretty easily, you know, but talking doesn't mean anything really. Talking is talking can be the biggest barrier we have and the film is full of long conversations where she is saying something and, and thinking another you know yes and the robert zemecki's version of life mm. <laughs> is is the furthest from the truth you know and actually this version of life where we get to finish <laughs> with a song before the pig with maggots in its belly <laughs> leads us to the next place you know yeah it feels you know it feels more real i think in many ways than than the zemeckis version yeah it's an interesting point to raise actually uh, uh, the question as to whether the kind of intellectual prowess displayed by both characters is performative rather than actually saying anything about the relationship whether it's a distraction for the fact that frankly they're physically so dif- distanced um in fact everyone in the film is physically incredibly distanced so there's no sense of intimacy at all even when they're in the same car and it's almost like that's uh maybe that's filling that gap in that relationship uh the sort of trying to impress one another or try to even just i think he imagines her emasculating him towards the end of the film frankly uh and that's kind of uh, that's a reflection of his self-doubt um and which is quite sad but also at the same time she doesn't have any agency and as you say, that there's a sort of misogyny to that, sort of creating the the perfect woman who um, can put you down when you want to be put down and raise you up when you want to be raised up. And that's not how real people work at all. Um, hmm. there's, there's one little camera trick I think he does, which is in those car scenes particularly, he'll keep reestablishing the scene. So instead of, you know, a shot... Um, you know, instead of the shots being sequential, he'll change uh, 
his camera so it's you know it's pointing at the woman's face and then it will just be another shot another setup and then just slightly round on her at a slightly different angle it's the sort of thing you don't normally see in cinema because it's disconcerting to see like yeah the shot that you would use to start a scene but like several different examples of those in a row and i think you know i think by breaking up the cinematic dialogue in that way he does a really good job of um you know, showing us that this is a fragment of a person, that this is someone stitched together from a, a lifetime of uh, input with very little output. Yeah, so I guess the traditional way to do it is you do one shot of one character, then a one shot of the other character, then a two shot at certain points. And then often you, the camera rests on the reaction of the person hearing the statement, whereas actually this film concentrates enormously on her as the, as the speaker. Um which again is very interesting when you realise that she is a, project, a projection of a man's fantasy, yes. um, and th- that gives it a strange hypocrisy. Uh, which on the second, I watched it twice, and the second time, which you know what's going on, uh, I find it more tragic and much more powerful. Actually, yeah, yeah, it's it's a it's a really interesting one, which I think, yeah, definitely, I'm I'm going to have to watch it again. I think because it does feel like a kind of watch twice type film. Yeah, and uh, I thought it was. Um, in some ways, it's a mess. I think it is bloated. I think it's super, super long. Um, but and I think, like, I really like Anomalisa. And I think the discipline of having, of writing an animated film where every single scene has to be painstakingly uh, stop-motion animated uh, added a kind of discipline that actually made that film much sharper. And he had to really focus in on what he wanted to say and do in each scene. Uh, but again, a, the, the same dark humour runs through a lot of his work. Um, I really appreciate that as well as a kind of bit of levity in between the deep relationships that he's, ex- he's exploring. Yes, absolutely. And I mean, I I, I don't think he's ever going to top um, being John Malkovich. Uh, no, it's classic. Because uh, that is a masterpiece. <laughs> um, yeah. I guess thinking about it in terms of a marriage story, which is, you know, um, a much more conventional film in pretty much every way. It's a very conventional film, I think. And, it is. and obviously when it came out, lots of people were like, well, what's the difference between this and Kramer versus Kramer? Mm. Which is a fair <laughs> point. Um, I watched A Marriage Story, which is very simply, and you know, this one, this film on Oscars, so I think people know it quite well, is a film about the breakup between two people played by Adam Driver and Scarlett Johansson. And it is a very messy divorce, which does not go easily um and it's another film where the performances are top to bottom incredible yeah yeah Um, absolutely i'm thinking of ending things only has four characters really (laughs) whereas marriage story has a has a cast which is obviously focused very much on uh the two leads but also has a, a cast which just kind of seems to go on forever with amazing people like you know Wallace Shawn in tiny parts, and then Laura, Laura Dern, Laura Dern Ray Liotta, who I'm just always delighted to see. In, yeah, in I can't believe you popped up in that. I was so surprised. Oh, I, I love Ray Liotta. I always think he's such a. I always think he's got such a beautiful. Even like you know, he's getting on a bit now. I always think he's such a beautiful guy. He's got like those amazing eyes and like got an amazing voice as well. An amazing <laughs> voice, yeah. Um, and also Julie Haggerty from Airplane. <laughs> yeah, of all, as, of all things. Yeah. As her mom. Uh, yeah, and it's a, you know, I found it, again, it's a film I watched and found myself irritated by as much as I was intoxicated by it. You know, yeah, it's a film It's a film written by Noah Baumbach um, in the wake of his divorce from Jennifer Jason Leigh, who's one of my favourite actresses. Um, uh, and 
as a child of divorce, I think it does a lot really well. Um, the feeling <laughs> and the severity of their arguments is very true to life. There's one incredible argument about two thirds of the way through that is again uh, so we did we ran up some of our best arguments last week and i'd not watched the story before then but it would have gone in <laughs> if i had seen it <laughs> and like yeah i mean i mean i'd, I'd be interested you know i've rabbited enough on enough i'd be interested to see what you thought of it if you were watching it relatively recently yeah so um knowing that we were going to be talking about them i watched both i'm thinking of ending things and marriage story on uh, saturday and sunday for the last weekend and had a great time <laughs> with both of them uh very interesting different reasons uh, i think the film doesn't work without Adam Driver and Scarlett Johansson uh, just being incredible. Um, and particularly Adam Driver, I think. I'm, I'm relentlessly impressed by Adam Driver. Every time I watch him in Girls or even as Kylo Ren in Star Wars, and then as this quite affable man who feels quite wronged in this relationship, and he, he frankly, the great friction at the heart of marriage story is the fact that Scarlett Johansson's character moves on much faster than he does. And he can't quite cope with that. And he still wants to kind of go back and try and revive things. Whereas the relationship's already dead. It was long dead. Um, it's called Marriage Story, which is quite an ironic title because it's actually end of marriage story. And there's a child stuck in the middle of this whole thing, which is where the stakes are. Um, and there's a, a kind of like tragic truth to the fact that uh, Adam Driver's character, in his pursuit of custody for his child, managed to alienate his child and ignore him and not actually like pay attention to him properly uh, and therefore like their relationship sort of rots as a result of that um so i think there's some really well observed dynamics like that that are very very sad uh even though they both eventually sort of sort of move on <laughs> i guess uh, but it's it's just a it's a truth of life like especially like horrible marriage breakups especially when they get the lawyers involved and it just escalates both of their uh their tensions with each other beyond what they think is reasonable because at the start of the film they want to just do it amicably but there's no like the bureaucracy of the system involved in divorce just escalates everything to the, ex to the extent it goes almost nuclear um i think that and that the inevitability of that was always was kind of dreadful to watch but in a good way like really well presented there's real fun to be had as well i think in the sort of procedure of it as well like mm. the procedural elements the the ins and outs of how one goes about obtaining a divorce i thought i found that really um uh fun uh to kind of go through the, the lawyers are very fun characters as well so laura dunn is obviously is um scarlett johansson's lawyer in that film and she's a, she's a fantastic character because she's a therapist as well as a lawyer basically uh, and a lot of um scarlett johansson's character are burdening herself there's a huge one shot actually quite early in the film when she first meets laura dunn's character um where she just walks back and forth and just kind of lays down the agony of the breakup um it's, a, it's an amazing performance and again just like to do that in like a five minute one shot is just mesmerizing and really good but laura dern's there and she's she puts it for a sympathetic ear but then she's also like incredibly ruthless and uh she will destroy any other lawyer who comes <laughs> and, and she'll she'll tell any lie required to win the case uh so there's, there's two sides to a character and, and the, 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 the latter one is her real character i think that's what she's really like as she puts on a, a kind face when needed to get a client um that's so very well sketched yeah it i'd like you know if you weren't sold on scarlett johansson before watching this film you are afterwards you know she's undeniably fantastic you know i think she's she's an actress that people have been a little bit cool on in the past um 
I think I think was thinking of it with regards to I'm thinking of ending things because I'm thinking of ending things as a film that is obsessed with the un- like all of his films obsessed with the uncertainty of of things mm. and obsessed with questioning one's own projections uh, against the, the the thoughts and feelings and desires of another and I think that Noah Baumbach can be a good director and writer I also think he cannot be so good I think he's made some films which are much thinner than this and much much more arch and kind of angled than this the film he made previously was called um while we're young uh which also has adam driver in it and is about a kind of older couple meeting a younger couple and trying to sort of rediscover their youth which just felt really wafer thin um and culturally a little bit illiterate almost you know a little bit kind of easy um my favorite film of his is Margaret the Wedding, which is Nicole Kidman goes to visit her sister, played by um Jennifer Jason Lee. And that for me is is my is just it's a it's a story about a miserable family being miserable to each other in a you know a sort of New England uh, setting. And it's the best story. It's great. It's Nicole Kidman's best performance, I think. Um but here I think he I think it's I think it's undeniably a great film. Everything about it is wonderful. I think the only issue I have with it is that I don't think it sells her side as well as it sells his. I agree with that. And I think I think you could make a film and you can make films where one person comes out on top and it becomes clear who the baddie was in the in the relationship, you know, obviously that happens all the time, but I think this film wants to be a film about equivalence and about the relative pain of two people and how they come to an understanding on either side of of a separation. Mm-hmm. And actually, the film A Separation, which I think is probably one of the best films ever made, the Iranian Asghar Fahadi film from 2009 or whatever it was, does an amazing job of that. Um, this film, you believe in him <laughs> more than you believe in her. And it's written by a man, which is obviously mm-hmm. going to you know, cause issues there. But I think the film could have gone deeper on her. And instead, it uses Laura Dern's character, who is a fantastic character, and Laura Dern is a fantastic actress. It leans on her to provide the voice of Scarlett Johansson's pain, because actually the film and the script of the film can't quite go deep enough to find the, you know, the the real truth to her. And I think that that is a glaring omission when I'm watching it. Yeah. So they, they, they almost spell it out too much, but they don't quite follow through when she talks about, she feels like she lacks agency in the relationship, that she's not a true person because she's in the shadow uh, of this guy who's also directing her in theater. So there's there's a power imbalance there as well. Uh, But then I think you're right, particularly because it's dropped in like two lines later in the film that he cheated on her in the first few years of their relationship. It's almost never revisited. And of course that's a huge that's a huge th- thing that he did. That, that, like, they're both wronged parties. They've wronged each other. But uh, you're right, the weight is definitely uh, with Adam Driver's character as opposed to um, Scarlett Johansson's character in that. Yeah, and it's like, you know, where is the toxic masculinity here? Because toxic masculinity is a real thing. It affects both women and men. <laughs> and it is present to a degree in every relationship i think i think it's an unavoidable aspect of life to an extent you know um even if it's sort of minuscule and i think in times of divorce uh 
and with people having affairs and cheating and, and stuff like that, it's something you have to engage with um, as a human being as well as a filmmaker, I think. And I think the failure to do it in a marriage story or the desire to slightly, even subconsciously protect the man here the man. Yeah. <laughs> is a little bit glaring. And I think, I guess what I was suggesting earlier when I'm thinking of ending things is I was wondering whether that film does it as well. Um, mm. Maybe it does in its own way. I'm not sure. <laughs> it's it's very hard to tell because, like, the character the janitor invents in his head is incredibly smart and empathetic and just better than him. But at the same time, that's an ego trip on his part. Like, he's that's a, that's an expression of how he feels sorry for himself, um, especially in the darkest twilight years of his life. And so, which actually you understand the premise, it's like makes it worse in that respect. It's it's almost like a, his his wank dream, a, a sad crying wank dream. <laughs> yes, it very much is. It is, uh, and and in that sense, you can't call it particularly fair on her as a character. It's a very it's a very chaste film as well. Like, yes, isn't yeah, there sort of one is. kiss maybe between them? A peck on the cheek, or something. Is it a peck on the cheek? Yeah, something like that. Yeah, as I mentioned earlier, like everyone, there's no intimacy in it at all. Which no. is how like, they seem to use words to hold each other apart, um, and there's no sense of passion or love there, uh, which there is in to an extent in marriage story. I think that's um, make a really good point about the weighting of that drama. Um, and I think you're right; they probably both are guilty of the similar problem, um, even though they're very different films stylistically. Kaufman is a is a writer who is a kind of. He he will employ a filibuster, you know. He will like <laughs> he will just keep talking, keep talking. And as someone who listens to this podcast, and no doubt rapidly becoming aware that I'm someone who can talk and talk and talk, and I'm also someone who's aware that that is an easy. I'm not saying it's what I always do, but it, I know from sort of thinking about things that like it can be a way to cover things up and a way to shut down conversations, you know. Mm. Um, and in times of conflict between couples and in divorce, you know. What is a divorce if not people talking at each other, reams of information in the hope that someone else will back down, you know? And I think, you know, maybe that's kind of why the films seem tied together to me in a funny kind of way. Yeah. There's also, I think, to both films, a sense of competition between the, the man and the woman in both cases that um, me and my partner definitely felt in marriage story because afterwards we were arguing the merits of each, each one's case, uh, which the film and the entire divorce system invites you to do. Yeah. Whereas the true answer is that this was no one's fault, really. It's just sometimes humans grow apart and go wrong. Yeah, which is the horrible truth about um, divorce. I mean, it's a Louis C.K. joke, and I don't tend to take uh, instruction from him. No, but he has that line about how no happy marriage ends in divorce, which is... <laughs> is very... <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah, pithy. Yeah, he's, he has some good lines before he went wrong. Um yeah, I, uh, the point about toxic masculinity is well taken as well. Uh, I I agree that it's uh, toxic masculinity as an umbrella term covers things that we absolutely should talk about, the way men are socialised and the way that men expect themselves to behave or automatically behave. Um, I think the phrase is terrible because it does not travel beyond uh, intellectual Twitter circles. So if, you get, if you're trying to persuade someone of your point of view, calling them poison is not a great way to start the discussion. Um and I think that's the way that a lot of people take it. No, uh, you're they, absolutely right. It's a very clumsy social media ready term that doesn't hold much substance if you Yeah, it also I think um the phrase obscures the reality of what you're talking about. Like uh 
talk about male anger instead and how that's processed. Let's like, talk about the specifics and I mean, how the entitlement. Yeah, the, yeah, precisely, and kind of like what's expected of you as man. And what I think the um, what stuff I've learned is that stuff that I just uh, it doesn't even occur to me to do the ironing. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like often, like sometimes I think, oh yeah, I should do that, but it's not like a duty, and that th- that's definitely a failing on my part, and that's definitely part of masculinity as a construction, social construction. And I'm not saying that to excuse myself because it's definitely wrong but um yeah it's definitely i like films and books that actually explore this without just using quite cheap labels uh to look good on yeah. twitter because there are you could make an argument that scarlett johansson's character <laughs> in in uh, a marriage story is is a bit like the young woman in i'm thinking of ending things like mm. she is a puppet of a male writer who who says and does the right things (laughs) as described by him you know yes yeah Uh, yeah um and you know obviously that's always going to be the case with a character but i think you know when it comes down to a divorce which is a a more than kind of any other act is this kind of division between a married couple in this case a man and a woman you know it's 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 hard to to separate the artist from the art here i think <laughs> yeah for sure uh i thought um the kid was used quite cheap leverage as well uh, i think that lots of films do this actually where that they it's very hard to find good child actors but i th- still think like just putting a kid in it or putting a kid in, in danger is very much shorthand for cr- getting an emotional reaction out of people um that could be quite cheap yeah margaret the wedding has a, a similar um child kind of uh, cipher in it who's much better because mm. he's basically <laughs> he is basically this kid who has this mom who is just horrible to him <laughs> right. and it just it, you know she's just horrible to him she belittles him and she loves him and the film draws so much from that rubbish very true relationship between the two that mm. you know a marriage story just doesn't bother to do with with the child in it <laughs> yeah he's just kind of cardboard cut out <laughs> kid isn't he yeah which is a shame um both films are interesting and worth checking out if you love a good torrid relationship drama. <laughs> and yeah, so uh, that was a very satisfying discussion, I think. Uh, and that's pretty much all the time we have in this podcast to talk about television. But uh, Jamie, if you're up for it, I'll, I'll do this again soon. Uh, we've got many more films and television shows to discuss. <laughs> I didn't even talk about EastEnders very much, uh, so I'll, uh, that'll be one for the next episode. <laughs> Absolutely. I'll do that. <laughs> um, so yeah, everyone, uh, thank you so much for getting in touch with us via the Creating Crowbar Discord. And um, you can email us at creatingcrowbar at gmail.com with further feedback or thoughts on any of the films and television shows we've been discussing. Um, I've been Tom Senior, and I've uh, been delighted again to be joined by Jamie Brisson. Uh, so uh, thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks for listening. Hooray, we Yay. did it. <laughs>